I think without fail, uh, people of faith love to see God move. They, they, they desire for God's power and presence to be among them, and, and um, they want more of God. I, I don't know of any um, person of faith, even not Christian, but any person of faith that, that doesn't desire more of God to be part of their life. You know, when you read history, you see great examples, unique examples of, of times of great outpouring of God among his people. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, of course, a pastor in New England in the 18th century, wrote much on revival because they had seen many revivals take place um, at that time. And, and here's one of the accounts that he wrote regarding God's spirit kind of uniquely and, uh, filling the church and the town in which he ministered. And here's what he writes. He says, it was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, husbands over their wives, wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The assembly in general was from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. And he goes on to just speak about the unique effects of when God touches a church. Now, when we look at ourselves just for a minute, we do a quick assessment. Do we sense, do we think that we have such a need today here for us? I mean, do you sense a need for revival of your own soul where where God's spirit would become more profound, more pronounced? The power would be more readily available for you? And if you do feel that, then how do you get it? I mean, should we just have a tent revival as often seen that you just... You just plan on, hey, we're going to have revival meetings in three weeks. Is that how you bring a revival? Well, here we are at, at, the, end of, um, at the end of Isaiah, just about. And uh, we're in this section, chapters 56 to 66. Remember, in chapters 1 to 39, you kind of, it's a chronicle of a downward spiral of a people that just are finding a lot more love in everything but God. And, of course, that leads them into judgment, leads them into exile, right? And then 40 to uh, 55, you see Isaiah begin to speak in more profound and clear ways about a servant that will come and bring deliverance to a people. And then you have in 56 to 66, Isaiah begins to unfold this glorious salvation that we're being invited to. He kind of unfolds it, leading us up to see, hey, there's a new heavens and a new earth that is the pinnacle of God's end plan for his people. And so what does Isaiah do? Well, he's speaking to a people that are about to head to exile. I mean, remember now, all of us are going to be carted to North Korea. The the idea is to take these people of Judah who were blessed of God to go to the other side of the Fertile Crescent to Babylon would have been horrible. I mean, you lost family, friends, lands, professions. I mean, it would be overwhelmingly burdensome. Many would die. Many would suffer. And so he's speaking to them as they're about to go into this difficult time and saying, but there's a new heavens and there's a new earth and it's for you. So what do we do between those two times? Well, he prays. And that's what Isaiah 64 is. It's a prayer. He's interceding for these people. He's praying for them to see the greatness of God. He's praying that God's power would revive them in the midst of their trouble to be looking forward to that day. He's trying to revive these sluggish hearts so that they would be in faith even in trouble. Now, 
let me just draw a quick analogy to us. We're not Israel, we're not Judah, we're not being carted to Babylon. But we are God's covenant people. And as God's covenant people, we are not yet in this new heavens and new earth that he promised us. We are in, if you will, a much more comfortable, I would say, but we are in exile from God. Because God has made great promises to us, and all of them as of yet have not, have not yet been fulfilled. And so we're kind of waiting in the same station. We're in exile. And so what I want to do today is give two, two main points to you. Number one would be to look at his prayer of intercession. And I want to challenge you to mirror the way you pray versus the way Isaiah prays. And I want to look at challenging you in how do we pray in this time looking for that day. And then I want to encourage you regarding how God answered this prayer and how God will answer our prayers. So I want to challenge you. This is how we pray. And I want to encourage you. This is how God answers prayer. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 64, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. Isaiah 64, 1 to 12. And, and technically, I'm picking this prayer out. The prayer actually begins in Isaiah 63, verse 7, but I'm going to be just reading 64 this morning. You can go back and read the first part of the prayer. So here's Isaiah. He says, Oh, that you would rend, and he's speaking on behalf of the community of faith, He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts or who works for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully who works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned in our sins and we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have become, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? And afflict us so terribly? I mean, I hope you can hear the emotion dripping out of this prophet. When we look at prayer, to revive the soul, prayer that revives the soul, a revival-type prayers, begins with the first thing is desperation. Desperation is the first fundamental aspect of a prayer that will revive us. So if you and I want to have our souls revived, if we want to seek God for this, 
It has to begin with desperation. Look at the first verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. We need God's grace every day, but there's something unique here. Uh, there's something unique, you know, that we have the expression desperate times require desperate measures. These are desperate times. As I said, it's exile. They're being carted off to another land. You can see the spiritual apathy. You can see the complacency. I mean, listen to what he says in verse 7. There is no one who calls upon the name. There's no one who rouses himself to take hold of you. If you look back in 63, he prays, Abraham wouldn't even know us. In other words, we're so far gone, spiritually speaking, Abraham wouldn't even recognize us. He wouldn't even consider us as his children the way we behave, the way we live. So they're in a desperate situation. I mean, it's profound how much trouble they're in. They have no way out. They can't wake themselves up. They can't revive their own souls. What are they going to do? Well, Isaiah intercedes for God. God, you've got to intercede. Rend the heavens and come down. The word rend, that verb means to like rip open as you would tear open a curtain. Come down, God. We need your help. There is no other help besides you. So when we pray, when we want our souls revived in the things of God, it begins with us understanding our desperate need. Now, when I say our desperate need, I'm not talking about the hand-wringing that we do when things don't work out. I'm not talking about some frustration that we have, you know, when things are going awry or going sideways, and it's not working out as you planned or as I planned, or my controlling feature isn't able to, to, you know, move all the levers and turn all the knobs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a desperation here. I'm talking about a sense of helplessness. When we look at the world and we recognize its antagonism towards God, we look at the world and we see this downward spiral. We look at our marriages and we recognize, why can't we change? Why is there no change happening? We look at our children and the parenting that we're trying to exercise. It's not having the effect that we want it to have. Or we look at ourselves and we say, why do I keep falling susceptible to the same besetting sin over and over and over again. When you really are just, it's like a holy dissatisfaction where I'm so tired of things as they are because they're so far from what God would have. This is a kind of helplessness that we need to begin to feel. In other words, you're out of your tricks. You can't reach in your bag anymore. Or someone, you know, you can't read another book. There's four steps to being a Great marriage, having a great marriage. You don't have those things anymore. You've tried them all. They've failed you. They haven't changed you. And you're at a point of helplessness where God is the only one who can save you. He's the only one. This is where helplessness is a good thing because it pushes us to God. And God, you've got to do it. And the great thing is, in his prayer, look in verse 4. He says, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. This is the desperation I'm talking about. That if we're not desperate for God to move, if you think that you just need a little help, God doesn't move in the same way. We have to, you know, that that apart from Jesus, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We quote that, but we don't necessarily believe it because we think we can do so much. We are comfortable We are satisfied. This prayer, Isaiah's prayer of intercession, he doesn't feel like he can get halfway there and and God's just got to bump him for the other half. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a great preacher in uh, 
I quote him often because he is a great preacher. Uh, died in the early 80s. He preached in London through World War II and uh, at Westminster Chapel. And here's what he wrote about this O, this desperation. He says this, Is there an O in your praying? That is a very good test of prayer that this O comes in, O Lord, that you would run the heavens. Or are you such good people doing such excellent work as evangelicals, busy with this organization and the other, that all you need to do is ask God to bless you and to keep on? Do you know what it is to say, O Lord? Someone once said that a sign, the best sign of coming revival, is that the word O would begin to enter the prayers of his people. That we would be so desperate, oh God, would you do it? So you can't fabricate this. If you don't feel desperate, I would ask you to ask God to help you to feel desperate. I'm not looking for you to kind of put an emotion on yourself or on myself. But when you begin, the other night I woke up at 3 in the morning. And, uh, and I was preparing, in the, you know, it was, it was this past week, so I was working on this text. And, and about five or six situations just landed on my mind. I got no answers for them. And they're beyond my ability. I, I don't have been in ministry for a number of years. I've had a lot of experiences. I don't have the gears to be able to say, oh, this is what we do. This is where we go. This is the step you take. And I just, I just found myself saying, God, oh, would you run the heavens? Would you give grace to us? What do we do? Do something remarkable. It's kind of prayers that are going to precede and to strengthen us waiting for that day. That's the first thing I would say. It is prayer, reviving prayer, Begins with desperation. Secondly, it begins with you and I being aware of God's redemptive work in the past. In other words, the second part of a reviving prayer is you and I are aware of God's redemptive work in the in the past. Look at three and four with me. In three and four, it says, "When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you." who acts for those who wait for him. What Isaiah is doing here is he's just reflecting on what God's already done. He's just meditating on the stunning power of God. So when you and I are looking at situations that are desperate, because now we're desperate, and we're looking at situations of which seem impossible, what should we do? Well, we begin to reflect on what God has already done. Now, Isaiah references two situations. One was the exodus of Egypt out of slavery, and then when God came down on the mountain in Sinai, and when God landed, the whole place shook. Can you imagine? I mean, a mountain shaking as God lands upon it. And that's what he references. In other words, what he said, can you imagine? So let's just say we are slaves in Egypt, and Moses comes in with his troop, and he's ready to deliver us. How does God begin to display his power? He uses gnats. He uses flies. He uses darkness. He uses water turning into blood. He uses the, the slaying of animals, the killing of a firstborn. Who would have thunk it? Who would have even imagined this power of God to use gnats to bring about the crushing of a major superpower? Gnats. Or, or think about, he references the exile in here. You know, you know how the people, they work hard at, to Babylon, right? You'll see that at the end of chapter 39. How did he get him back? How did he transport a people back to the land? He uses a pagan king, Cyrus. He raises up a pagan king. Now, if you're 
if you have been deported and you are under foreign domination and there is no way that you think you can ever get back to your homeland and then God raises up a pagan king to move with grace towards you to send you back with money to build a temple, I think you'd be scratching your head. I think you'd be saying, he does things no one else does. I mean, he does it unexpectedly. God will always exceed both the predictability that we have, looking at what might God do here, but also our expectations. You you know the expression we have that so-and-so is a a one-trick pony? A one-trick pony that comes from the the 19th century. You know, they would have, in circuses, they would have a pony. This is, I think, a North American treat that we've invented. But a one-trick pony, they'd train a pony to do one trick. That's all it can do. That's all. It, has no, it doesn't have a set of tricks it can do to impress people. God's not a one-trick God. He can do things above and beyond all that we can even ask or think. That when we are praying, that when we're in the situation, in exile, you are in trouble, you are thinking about what God has done. So, so, so to pray reviving prayers, you have to stimulate your mind. You have to remember what God has already done. He's left himself open to your investigation. This is what I've done. This is why we want to be students of biblical history. We want to be students of church history. You know, church history, the teachings of God, kind of just woven into the fabric of these different humans, and then the godliness and faithfulness and trial. When you read churches, that's why we do biographies every year here. Every year I want to raise up an individual, man or woman, to say this is, this is a simple person, but God's power has done fantastic things through them. In fact, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing in Revival, says that reading Christian history is a tonic to a drooping soul. It, it, it moves us to believe that, yes, God's able to do it. He's able to preserve us and to strengthen us in the middle of exile while we wait for this new heavens and new earth. I would encourage you, not just biblical history, not just church history, but your own personal history. Do you know how God has moved in your life? Do you ever think about it? Do you ever go back and think what God did? Carol and I will periodically kind of walk down a memory lane and and look what God has done in our life. We did this a couple nights ago, and we just thought, you know, what was I doing as a CPA in Severna Park, Maryland? And now, what am I doing here as a pastor? Now, now if you're asking that question, that's a problem. (laughs) I'd appreciate it if you didn't. I will ask the questions. Thank you very much. But I, I, I sat there and thought, how did he get us from being a CPA with kind of deep stakes in the ground to chuck it all to go overseas and live in Europe for a couple of years? To go to, I, don't, I, I could never have planned it. And if you knew my background, which was fairly, had some fairly dark parts to it, people still ask my mother, what happened to that second son you had? Because the, the way I lived and the way I am now, people can't, you don't get it. It doesn't make sense. You can't trace it out and say, oh, here's the, here's the flow of logic that, that happened. So, so know your own history. Where has God moved? What has God done? How has he delivered you? How has he opened your eyes to his glory? Think on those things. The same God who began a good work in you will complete it to perfection. So you go back and look, not just at your conversion, all the acts of grace that God evidenced prior to you opening your eyes. I mean, the parents that I had, 
that at least revealed God to me, at least in a, in a big kind of transcendent sense, even though I didn't understand the gospel. I don't know that they understood the gospel, but they at least explained God to me. That was an act of grace. That was an act of grace, preparing my, preparing my soul. So, so if you want to pray reviving prayers, we have to understand our absolute desperateness for God to move, for God to work. You know, remember now, all the pagans, when you worshipped idols, you worked for them. You brought the sacrifice. You did the deeds. You work for the idols. We have a God who works for us, who works for us. So desperate prayers, God, you've got to work for us. You've got to move towards us. Secondly, prayers that are aware of redemptive history and God's. But then thirdly, that, that a reviving prayer, a prayer that gets a community of faith together strong, ready to look forward to that day, is a prayer of lament. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So, so here's what he's saying here. Isaiah, like Nehemiah, like Ezra, like Moses, like Daniel, is including himself in this prayer. Do you see that? Don't you hear, at least in verse 6, that, that, that kind of ring to it that Isaiah 53 had? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. Isaiah, putting himself with us, is saying we're unclean. That word is used for a ritual defilement like leprosy. You'd be separated from the, from the temple. You'd be separated from the people of God. We're stained. We're stained and we need to be excluded from the community. That's what Isaiah is saying. This is who we are. If truth be told, we've been defiled. Not only that, but even on your best days, he said, even our righteous deeds, even when you're hitting on all cylinders, even then those acts are like a polluted garment. It's a cloth used by a woman at the end of the month. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. Even on our best day, it's always tinged with self-interest. Even my desire for you to profit from this sermon is still tinged by desiring that you like me. Even our righteous deeds are tinged. What Isaiah is doing here is he's just laying it on the table for the Lord. He's lamenting about who we are. He He doesn't dismiss sin. He's not excusing it. He's not seeking to redefine it. He's not blaming it on culture. He's not blaming it on Hollywood. He's not blaming it on the Internet. He's not blaming it on the iPhone. True lament accepts responsibility. This is who we are, God. We've sinned against you. We confess to you. Even our best deeds... You are so holy, even our best deeds, tinged with our self-interest, they're like a polluted garment. But not only are our sins that way, look at what happens to us in our sin. Look with me at verse 7, or or back at 6. He says, we fade like a leaf. Folks, if that isn't a testimony to human history, even the greatest leaves, the healthiest, the, the most vibrant and strong, all begin to fade. We all fade. That sin has that outworking effect that we go from green and healthy to kind of brown and brittle and we just begin to fade. And then what happens as sin continues to work in us and we're in this broken world, what happens? Well, we end up falling off the tree. No leaf can direct where it goes. It's just driven by the wind. Wherever the wind takes it, wherever it goes. And so we, as we give in to sin and we begin to 
give in to our lusts and our passions and our desire, we end up going places we would have never imagined. And I, I've heard more than a few people say, I can't believe how I got here. Well, yeah, you can. Because you just give in, you give in, and all of a sudden your lust and passion, and you're, you're like an animal with a plate of food. You just move before you even think about what you're moving toward. And that's the warning. And then here's what happens. Then God, we lose interest in him. He's not that real anymore. The, the, the physical and the pleasurable is so real because it's right in front of me. And what happens is seven. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. We don't want God. We're not even rousing ourselves. It, it's sad that you even have to rouse yourself to take a hold of God, but we don't even want to do that. And all of a sudden, he becomes distant. We're alienated. We're separated from him. He has hidden his face from us. And now we begin melting in in the hand of our iniquities. I mean, we're beginning to allow our sins to consume us. So what Isaiah is doing here to revive the people, he's praying, God, have mercy on us. This is the first step of revival, is that we're confessing our sins. This is a mark of revival. When we begin to see our sin, we begin to see ourselves as we are, and we confess it to God. There's a man from Syria, a desert father, Isaac, the Syrian, he wrote this. And I've quoted it to you before, uh, but I think it's profound in its simplicity, what it teaches. He says that one who apprehends his own sin is better than one who, through his prayers, raises the dead. Now, note the comparison. Raising the dead, that's a great thing. Like around a hospital, it's a great thing to raise the dead. People really like you. And that's a good thing. People begin coming from the dead. That's good. But that doesn't compare to the value to the person who actually understands their own sin. C.S. Lewis said the same thing. He writes, The one essential symptom of the regenerate life, that is the life that God has regenerated and made alive, is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural and it seems unalterable corruption. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. That's us. That's ancient truth and somewhat modern truth. See, the reviving prayer is the one that will walk in confession and repentance. Now, you and I don't live in a culture anymore that looks at sin as the Bible does. Let's just put that right on the table. I'm not complaining about it. It just is what it is, right? We, we have denied sin. The book, Whatever Happened to Sin, is passe now. We, we don't look at sin as we once did. So the book, Whatever Happened to Sin, a, a book should follow up. It's sequel. Whatever Happened to Shame. Here's how you know that we've gotten rid of sin, because there's no shame. And the behaviors and the, and the things that we do now would have brought great shame, let's say, 50, even 75 years ago. I mean, the way people dress, the way people behave. We, within the upper realms of, of, of leadership of our country, uh, to the entertainment industry, to whatever. I mean, even the jokes we have about people in the leadership would have been just anathema 50 to 75 years ago. So when sin goes out the door... The shame associated with the sin just follows right behind it. Right? So you have Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin. What's the first thing that happened? Shame. They cover themselves. They're embarrassed. They're hiding from God. They're running for cover. Well, when you take sin out of the way, then shame goes with it. And so people do. They say things that normally you'd be like, hmm, 
But people aren't ashamed anymore. They can bounce right back in life after just disastrous things. Because sin is gone, so is shame. And now it's in the church. You know, we sing that song, In Christ Alone, by the Gettys, that Irish couple. It's a beautiful song. And in the song, uh, one of the lines is, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So we sing it, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God against what? Well, against our sin. So God's wrath comes down on our sin. We're sinners. God's wrath came down on Christ as our substitute. That's the gospel. Well, two different publishers over the past number of years wanted to use that song. And they requested the use of the song, which they have to do, but they wanted to change it. They wanted to change it to this. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, I I do believe that God's love is magnified on the cross. But do you see what's happening here? We want to remove sin. We want to remove that substitutionary atonement. We want to remove the wrath away. Even within the church, we don't like to talk about sin. And that's a dangerous thing, because when the sin goes, then the cross goes, and the gospel goes right behind it, because you don't need it. You don't need a gospel without sin. It's the way it is. Now, do you consider yourself, do you ever take the time and think through the nature of sin in your own life? And does it lead you to repentance? Do you ever strive to keep your conscience clear before God and man, as Paul did? Striving is a work. It's a work. You've got to think through. I don't want to see my own sin. It takes me a little bit of work to get at motivations and why I do what I do and to think through why did I have to act so selfishly in this context. And, and, and so do you strive that way? Now, let, let me just real quickly knock down this false understanding that if you think about your sin and it leads to confess, confession and repentance, that somehow you're going to be led to despair and woe is me. And that time all that sin talk just ruins people, ruins people, ruins people. Let me, let me just quote to you from a great scholar, J. Gresham Machen, who wrote in the, uh, in the first half of the 20th century. And here's what he writes about that idea. He was comparing it to liberalism at the time. He says that, um, he's talking about the, the Christian heart is the broken heart. It's the broken heart because of the nature of sin. It breaks our heart. And he says, we don't mean that the characteristics of the Christian attitude is a continual beating on the breast or a continual crying, woe is me. Nothing could be further from the fact. On the contrary, Christianity means that sin is faced once and for all. And then it's cast by the grace of God forever into the depths of the sea. In Christianity, nothing needs to be covered up. He says the fact of sin is faced squarely once and for all, and it's dealt with by the grace of God. But then after sin has been removed by the grace of God, the Christian can proceed to develop joy, joyously every faculty that God has given to him. Without the consciousness of sin, the whole gospel will seem to be a bit of an idle tale. So it's a good thing to consider sin because we get to face it square. It is what it is. It's been dealt with at the cross, and now we can move joyously. That's a beautiful thing. Folks, that's why the Christian can deal legitimately with guilt and shame because it's been dealt with. The rest of the world has to deny the shame. They have to deny the guilt. And I'll tell you, that brings on all kinds of psychoses. It brings on all kinds of problems and struggles. So that's the third part, is consider the nature of sin. The fourth is we want to consider the grace of God. Reviving prayer considers the grace of God in this new relationship we have. So right now, we've gone through this prayer. 
we've gone through seven verses, and they've been pretty dark. Oh, that you'd rend the heavens. And we talk about the, the history of God, you know, the past works. Look at 6 and 7, the confession of sins. But look in verse 8. And that word, B-U-T, but now. Uh, that's such a great, you see it in Ephesians 2.5, you see it throughout, throughout Scripture, it's a great contrast. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You're the potter, we're the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, remember not your iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we're your people. And then he goes on in 10 and 11 to talk about the destruction of the city. So here's Isaiah, he's praying, and he's praying to God with this in his mind. And this has to be part of your mind if you want to pray reviving type prayers. Is you have to recognize, let's be honest, the cities were in desolation, they were ruined, they were like wildernesses. The temple that God ordained to have built was burnt with fire. They couldn't go there anymore. It was ruined. They were even out of their own homeland. And you know Isaiah says, no problem. God, you're still our father. There's a covenant relationship that God has established with us in Christ, that I'll talk about in a minute, that he is our father. We are his children. I mean, think about it for a minute, the fatherhood of God. Folks, if you can just begin to grasp this, even 10% of it, that God being your father, the love, the compassion, the protection, the, as, as Keith prayed so beautifully, just the facets of his fatherhood, if you begin to grasp that, you want to be clay in his hand. You want him to mold you. Instead of us molding God into our image, no, we want him to mold us into his image. This is the Father. God, you're our Father. Can you say that? Because the degree to which you can understand God as a Father will be the degree of the joy that you have in the Christian life. I, I make such a bold... In fact, I'll just quote what um, J.I. Packer said. He said, and I've quoted this before, it's worth repeating. You sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of God as a holy creator... He says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. He's our father. We are the clay. We can submit to God gladly, willingly, even in discipline because he's molding us and he's shaping us. Not only that, but he forgives us. Look at Isaiah. Even steeped in sin, even saying that his righteous deeds were like a polluted garment, and he says, we're your people. All this covenantal language. Be not angry with us. Don't remember our iniquities forever. I wonder how many of us here as Christians, when you sin and you do something really stupid and you get just knee-deep in sin and guilt, you don't go to God. You, you want to somehow, it, it's an insidious thing. I watch it in my own heart. I somehow want to think, well, I'm going to do a few good things first before I go to God. I'm going to kind of do some self-atoning so that now I can have more worthiness to go to God. What is that about? I mean, as if I can self-atone to make myself worthy to go to God, God invites us to come laden with sin. God invites us to come confessing repentance, all the while walking right to him as our father. Folks, that is total freedom for us. You do not have to self-atone. The Christian confesses his sin as he's running to the arms of the father who loves him. And a father or mother here, you know, even if your child has done a 
horrible thing. And you see the repentance, and they're running to you. I cannot believe you put your hand up. Nope. Get yourself cleaned up first before coming in here. I don't think you'd do it. I hope you wouldn't do it. This, this relationship, you will not revive in prayer apart from understanding this relationship. There has been a covenant established in the blood of Jesus Christ for the Christian to go to God, even though he's broken. In fact, in Hebrews, it gives word to it. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what we have. So the first part of this prayer is a challenge to you. Do you pray this way? Reviving prayer comes as our hearts are desperate, as our hearts are being filled with the past works of God, both in the life of the Christian, but also in, in our own personal lives. That reviving prayer comes as we begin to lament and confess our sins, and that we walk in the knowledge of the relationship that now we're sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. That's what I'm calling you to pray. Does that square with your prayer life? Are you desperate? Do you think about the acts of God? Do you walk in confession and repentance? And do you consider the relationship that has been forged in the blood of Christ for you as you approach him? That's how we're called to pray. Now let me answer the last question I had, which is, did he answer the prayer? Because look with me in verse 12. Did God answer this prayer? He says, will you restrain yourself with these things, O Lord? So Isaiah's praying. He says, will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Did Isaiah's prayer get answered? Well, look back with me at verse 2. Here's what he's praying. Verse 1 and 2, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. When the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. Here's why he's praying. Come that you would rend the heavens and come down to make your name known to your adversaries and the nations might tremble at your presence. So what Isaiah is actually praying for here is that God would rend the heavens, that God would come and establish his kingdom on this world. That he's not simply praying about the immediate needs that they have, although that's fine to pray for. Isaiah has a much more transcendent prayer. He's praying that God would come and make right wrong. Put things in order that we by our sin have disordered. He's praying for nothing short than for God to come. His name is, his name is known to his adversaries. His name is known to all the people that now we're trembling. Why? Because God is now with us. And now he's going to bring about a restoration, a reconciliation of all things. That's what he's praying. Have you prayed that prayer? That is a bold prayer. You're praying for God to come back and establish his kingdom. But did he answer it? I would say absolutely he did. In layers, I would even say. That's prophetic, you know, biblical prophecy always is answered in layers. First off, did he deliver them? They were in exile. Did they ever get out? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Cyrus, of course, as I said, was raised up. And the people returned to Judah. God did deliver his people back to the land. But that's a shadow of the fulfillment. That's just a type of fulfillment. Did he continue to restrain himself and keep silent? No. No, he didn't. And that's what we celebrate with Christmas, of course, is that he did rend the heavens and he gave us the sun. Do you remember in Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, and Nick referred to it at the beginning of the service, God with us, God for us. 
that he's come down. Did you remember Isaiah 9, that this child would come? He's a prince of peace. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. He's a wonderful counselor. And a government's going to sit upon his shoulders because he's going to establish a kingdom. And, and in, in Isaiah 11, he's the shoot from Jesse. And he's going to be filled with the spirit. And he's going to bring about a reordering of things. Do you remember in Isaiah 53, this child of promise would be a servant, and the servant would suffer all of our sins and bear God's wrath under it? Yes, God answered it. God answered it in Jesus Christ coming and establishing his kingdom and beginning now a work of redemption and reconciliation of all things. Yes, God answered Isaiah's prayer profoundly in Christ, and that's why we celebrate. But folks, there's even yet another layer of fulfillment to this. Because this question in 12 is going to be answered in chapter 65 and 66 of Isaiah. That there's a new heavens and a new earth that we're praying for. That will be, again, another rending of the heavens and Christ comes with power. This time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who wait for him. So folks, this is a glorious season to remind us that God has intervened. God has moved mightily. So when you pray, what is the basic content of your prayers? Is it more financial, emotional? Is it more physical? I mean, can we, even if, even if right now somehow Jesus would come down and fix all your immediate physical problems, all your emotional problems, all your financial dilemmas, tomorrow you've got another set. We, we want to pray for more. I, I would affirm to pray for these things. But we want to have we want to also lift up our prayers a little. Say, Lord, we want more than the immediate fix of life. We want you to reconcile all of life to yourself. What can be of greater value for you than to behold the face of the creator of the universe? I mean, what, what can be of great? Aren't you longing to be changed fully? Aren't you longing for the perishing of our bodies to put on imperishable or weakness to put on strength? Aren't you longing to be rid of the besetting sins that we have? Don't you long to see the one who shed his blood for you? I mean, aren't you longing to finally be where God orders all things and it's shalom, peace? Don't you long for family and relationships to be without that constant, that constant noise of conflict? Don't you long for that? That will only come when he comes. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly. That's what we pray. That's what he was praying for. He's come once to bear our shame and guilt. He's going to come again to bring all of this to us. So let's take a minute and pray and give thanks to God for for such a glorious Savior. What a wonderful God to do this for us. Profound in its nature. So I'm going to begin in prayer. Last week, you know, I encouraged just brief and and just bring forth a word of grace or thanks or confession. And you did a wonderful job. Jack's going to close us in a few minutes. And um, so let me start and then, then you can. And this is, again, it's a foretaste of what we're going to have. The time around the throne of glory, telling him how worthy he is for what he's done. So let me begin and then uh, we'll have a few minutes and Jack will close us. Father, I want to thank you that you, um, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived all that you are, all that you have done, all that you will do. Father, thank you for the joy that you'll always exceed our expectations. You'll always exceed our ability to predict what you do, and you'll always exceed the kindness that you give to us. Thank you.